Get to the church blind! Get to the church blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Hey, church planner, this is Peyton Jones, and you are with us today for Hardcore Church Planting. And my guest today is Gordon T. Smith. He's an author of a new book that I want to tell you about in a second and really have Gordon tell you about it. But first thing you ought to know about him is he's the president of Ambrose University and Seminary in Calgary, Alberta, where he also serves as professor of systematic and spiritual theology. He's an ordained minister with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. So if you know of A.W. Tozer, you know of that. And he's the author of many books, including Courage and Calling and Called to be Saints. So, Gordon, welcome to Hardcore Church Planning. Uh, my pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, you've written a book. It is a book that when it came through the mail, I don't pay for books anymore. Books are mailed to me. This is a wonderful thing about being a podcast host and the founder of a magazine is you never have to buy a Christian book ever again. But when I get these samples sent through or even a letter, in fact, your book, I didn't get it. I got an advance notice in a list of books and I looked through and said, now there's a book I want to read. In fact, I have to read that book. So I called and requested it, and the name of the book is Evangelical, Sacramental, and Pentecostal, Why the Church Should Be All Three. So amazing title and a good book. Um, I think you've captured something that I want to get back into. But before we do that, Gordon, the first thing we like to do is to – I feel like I should be calling you Dr. Smith, right? Am, no. I, am I blowing Go- it? Are we Gordon? No, no. Okay. Gordon's good. <laughs> Can we talk as friends? <laughs> Gordon's good. All right. Well, Gordon, thank you for that. Uh, tell tell me a little bit about how you came to faith. Well, I grew up. I mean, my, I'm ordained with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, but grew up within the tradition. So I'm fourth generation uh, evangelical in terms of just my religious identity ethos, and this book is written out of that uh, that tradition. My parents were missionaries in Latin America, and in growing up there, um, part of what I'm responding to is my experience of growing up in Guayaquil, Ecuador, where our our pastor, Miguel Lecaro, who was hugely influential when I was a teenager through his preaching, uh, very compelling, very uh, biblical, to use evangelical language, um, through that experience of being a part of that faith community and under the preaching ministry of Pastor Leca- Miguel Lecaro, I think reinforced the witness of my parents, and I responded to that and embraced that as an adult faith. Having said that, those roots, I mean, uh, Pastor Licado at this huge church on uh, Primera de Mayo Street in Guayaquil, we would, as young people, jokingly say that uh, every sermon uh, up one direction on Primera de Mayo was the Catholic Cathedral, up the other direction was the Pentecostal Temple. And every Sunday, he would denounce one or the other of them. On special Sundays, he would denounce both the Pentecostals and the Catholics. And so we grew up within this kind of anti-Pentecostal, anti-Catholic world. So I'm challenging that with this book, but I do so deeply grateful for my tradition 
I actually say I wouldn't be here were it not for. So my my critique has to be a gentle one because of a deep affirmation of that faith community in which I was formed. I should also add, though, that as a university student, um, I I don't know if I so much drifted away from the faith, but I wasn't kind of active in the faith. I don't know if I would have ever said I'm not a Christian, but there was ambiguity, there was doubt, and there's no two ways around it. Uh, the, the ministry of Francis Schaeffer, his writings in his books, and I was one of those kids in the 1970s who stumbled upon a place called Labrie in Waymo, Switzerland, and uh, there's just no avoiding, however much I might want to distance myself from Francis Schaeffer's theology and apologetic now, how deeply I grateful I am to his ministry, Francis and Edith Schaeffer, and their kind of cohort for with, with whom and for whom many of us are in the faith now because they helped us to see that we can be thinking, intellectually credible, uh, engaged Christians with a huge commitment to the arts as well. I married an artist uh, through that process, but uh, I'm, I'm grateful both to my initial formation under Miguel Lacado's ministry as well as to the ministry of the Schaefer, uh, the Labrie community in the 1970s. Wow, that's, that's quite a cool little deal. So did you actually make the pilgrimage to Labrie? I, I did. I was. Wow. Uh, I, I took a year out of university and traveled around, across northern Africa, even over to India. And on the way back, just uh, somebody just said, "If you've got time, why not go to Labrie?" I had read Francis Schaeffer before, but I didn't put Francis Schaeffer and Labrie together until I saw a book by Edith Schaeffer entitled "Home" or Labrie. I think it's called Labrie. Right. And realized that she's married to Francis, and they have this cool place in Waymo, Switzerland. And other people like me are going there, and um, it was a place that was both safe, but both safe, but also uh, deeply uh, stimulating intellectually. And this unequivocal challenging of the Christian mind that Schaefer was prepared to do, as I say now, I'm not sure I'm there, sure. but at the time, it's very much what I needed. And yeah. those evening, his son-in-law, Udal Middleman, uh, was doing a whole uh, – eventually published a book called Pro-Existence. But he was doing – when I was there for those weeks, uh, he was doing evening lectures that eventually became that book. And I sat there, and I realized, oh, this this is what it means to be a Christian. They gave me a new, a new conception of being a Christian that I think opened up avenues that are still um, – that I still see as a gift to me today, uh, now 40 years later. Mm, wow, I could do a whole podcast with you on the Brie. And some of the, uh, you know, it's not often that I talk to people that have been there. My brother-in-law is a professor over at Azusa Pacific, sure. and he spent time at Libre. And many people in your community, um, you know, now university professors, spend time there. And I think he sparked something in a whole generation. And really, um, that almost, that open house that he had, like, I don't know how he crammed so many people into his little space, but uh, I've done some reading on them. I almost wonder if we're heading back to a time where that's going to be very significant and important uh, because I see this generation many mirrors to your generation, but that's yeah, well, yes, yes. It, the, the genius of Labrie was that was the radical hospitality without the assumption that I need to respond in some way. So there's no altar call. There's no sense of here's the message. You need to get it with the program. There was a letting – the phrase that I often use, letting God do God's work in God's time in my life, and they were patient. They, they, they didn't kind of have an agenda for me. 
they just let me be, but with a radical hospitality and a challenging of the mind. It was brilliant. And I think you are right that there's a similar kind of cycle, uh, a sensibility that uh, – that we need to let people be, and frankly, trust God to do God's work in God's Amen. time in the life of another person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get into your book, Evangelical, Sacramental, and Pentecostal, Why the Church Should Be All Three. Can you unpack that a bit? What's the book about? Well, the, the book is in part uh, asking the question, in a post-Christian secular society, Let's assume that we need to uh, find ways to appropriate all the ways in which God is present to the church. So how does the church grow in faith, hope, and love? How does the church fulfill its agenda uh, when it comes to being uh, a community that, that knows the grace of God and engages the world with some integrity? Um, I, uh, I struggled a bit because along the way, I have many times been in conversations where these three have been polarized. So meeting, for example, with leaders of the Anglican Church in Peru, in Lima, but they were from Chile, and they said, we are evangelical and not sacramental. And I remember that just kind of jumped out at me. Oh, you have to choose between these. Uh, but aware that along the way, there have been movements in both uh, in the evangelical tradition, most notably in John Wesley, thinking of him not so much as a Methodist, but as an Anglican divine or an Anglican leader, who would never polarize between these two. Um, and then my work uh, of late within the, over the last decade in places like Romania, the Ukraine, uh, uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, where Baptists and Pentecostals live in these two silos. And I remember how often I would say these Pentecostals need what the Baptists are doing around Scripture. These Pentecostals need that. And what these Baptists are doing, they could use a little bit – I don't mean to be unkind, but there's a bit of a truncated pneumatology here, and what the Pentecostals are doing, they need some of that. And rather than saying we function in these silos, we need to learn from one another. And so these were, these were the kinds of experiences that led me to say, do we, do we need to polarize between them, or is there something uh, integral, essential to the ways in which uh, each of these, I'll call them for the moment, traditions or streams, need to be clear about what it means to be evangelical, but not in a way as, as though it's as over against Pentecostal or sacramental, but evangelical with a full appropriation of all the ways in which God is present through the church, through the sacramental, through the sacraments, or through the immediate presence of the Holy Spirit. So some people will say, I'm evangelical, which means all that God does in my life is through the word, and I discount or dismiss the immediate presence of the Spirit in my life. And I'm mm. saying, why do I need to choose? But you'll find, even within my own tradition in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, many people will argue, God speaks to me through the word, end of discussion, and that as soon as I open myself up to the immediate effect of the Spirit in my life, that somehow then I have been anti-evangelical. And I, my, experience of, uh, my experience of God personally, mm. but my experience of the church, my encounter with deep work of God in evangelical, sacramental, and Pentecostal traditions over the course, I would say, of the last decade led me to say, you know, somebody's got to just write the book that says, let's stop this uh, short-sightedness, kind of a truncated pneumatology if I'm evangelical, and can we have a full-orb pneumatology, a full-orb depreciation of the sacraments, and be still be deeply evangelical in our commitment to the scriptures? And when I ask that question, the answer is, of course, yes. <laughs> But I need to make the case, and so in the book, I make the case 
from two major streams of the New Testament. One, the Gospel of John. And I asked the question from John 15, 4, what does it mean to abide in Christ as Christ abides in me? And how is this even possible? How can I do this? And I say, I think there's three great answers, and they're all there in the book of John. And then I make the same answer from the book of Luke and Acts. And uh, people who have already written to me, having captured the book, say Acts chapter 2 in one chapter is all three. Mm -hmm. The early church experienced the immediate presence of the Holy Spirit. And they devoted themselves to word and sacrament, mm-hmm. like, oh, and, it, it, and I don't have to polarize between them. So I think the assumption often is if I'm truly Pentecostal, it means I don't, I'm not into the sacraments. And I love it. I'm just it, thrilled that there's a generation of emerging leaders in the church who are prepared to, to use Robert Weber's language of convergence, right. are prepared to say it is all three because we need all three. It is all three. And, and it's interesting because you won't be aware of this, but I wrote a book called Church Zero in 2013, where what I spelled out was the team church planning approach of the New Testament. It really encapsulated your apostolic, your prophetic, your evangelist, your teacher and your shepherd. And even within those roles, right? You could, you could argue that all three are present there. I mean, I don't know where the sacramental necessarily fits in, but you've got your prophetic leader and then you've got your teacher. And what happened with us in Europe was, um, we were just brought together for mission and we came from all different backgrounds and team leadership emerged quite naturally as none of us really wanted to run the show. We were like, God, we want you to do the heavy lifting. And I make an argument in there that all of us, and I just tease it a little bit, but that what has happened is there's been a fragmentation in the body of Christ and that church planting is the chance to get it right. Hey, here, here. Amen. Wow. Yes. Church planting. So, so I worked with a guy who I saw miracles and he wasn't a crazy guy on TV in a quiet back room. The power of the Holy Spirit was healing people and, you know, things were happening. And I, in theory, believed in the power of the Spirit, but in practice was purely evangelical. And then as I, as I began to, you know, really I was letting go of the reins of this church plant. We never became a circus. We had the rule that we have the no crazy rule that Paul says, if it looks crazy, don't do it. But other than that, I mean, it doesn't look crazy when people get healed. It doesn't look crazy when someone prophesies. And, and we found, and I realized God, God wants us all to be together. Imagine having, like you mentioned, a Wesley next to a John Piper next to a, you know, someone maybe, uh, more charismatic who, who operates in the supernatural, but you know, their theologies sound, like you said, the theology is going to be different, right? Yeah. In these different camps. But if we came together, imagine the powerhouse. That would happen. And so, yeah. Well, I, I, I take your point about church planters being able to do a new thing. I mean, I've done a lot of interim preaching. And I remember this church that would identify itself as evangelical, as biblical, and they invite me to come in as the um, interim preacher while they're in a search process for a new pastor. I come in, and I decided after I'd been there a little while that I was going to illustrate often how what I'm talking about in the preaching of the word, how this finds expression in the Lord's Supper, just using the Lord's Supper more as an illustration. This was a congregation in my tradition that observes the Lord's Supper once a month on the first Sunday of the month, and we've been we've done that forever. 
But people kept coming up to me saying, why don't we celebrate that more often? So finally, I raised this with the elders board. You know, folks, I'm hearing this. The response was, we've always done it this way. And as soon as we yep. start to do it more frequently, people are going to think we're Catholic. Yep. I, 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 and, I, and I think well, two things just happened. One, if the Catholics are doing it, it must be wrong, uh, <laughs> first of all. But secondly, that stunning language, we've always done it this way, is yeah. no tradition – Trump scripture, ironically. And I said, well, it's interesting that that's what you're referring to, but the, the patterns sometimes run so deep that it's very hard for a pastor to bring genuine uh, essential reformation, if I may use that strong word. Whereas when you're doing church planting, you don't have, to, you don't have all this baggage. No. And you, and you don't have people saying we've always done it this way because now we have the chance to create some new patterns and some new DNA that can appropriately respond to the challenges of being the church in uh, in a post-Christian secular society. It's so important what you're saying, because naturally when we planted the first church in Europe, we took communion every week because we just looked at the scripture and said, well, look, you know, they're taking communion all the time. And Jesus says, as often as you Precisely. come together. And you so we this. said, well, if, if we get to just reinvent this thing, and of course That's you've right. got you know, like I said, I believe that the prophetic leaders all went to the charismatic Pentecostal movement. The, the teachers went to the word based. The, <laughs> the apostles went, you know, out to the mission field because they're like, we got to go to new frontiers. The shepherds, you know, they tend to go into counseling ministries or whatever, you know, teachers also go into seminaries, but it, we're just fragmented. We're split out and we were meant to be doing this together. Yeah. And, uh, and at the end of the day, we found ourselves, we were all three and it was, it was natural. And I remember somebody taking me aside and saying, you can't do this. It won't work. And it worked. Mm -hmm. It was so radical in, in getting to the point where even the sacrament of baptism, where we literally, um, uh, we, we, we didn't do altar calls. We didn't do any of that. We, and, and this became very important to me in Long Beach in the Rainbow District when we we're dealing, uh, with people coming from, uh, alternative lifestyles where we use baptism as a rite of passage. And so we'd have people that, you know, they would come and they would say, and, and we wouldn't put a big trip on them. We wouldn't tell them how they, but at a certain point, they would understand baptism and either they would continue to follow on with Jesus. Sure. Because they realize my old life ends, my new life begins, and we didn't connect all the dots for them. We just left it to the Holy Spirit. They would ask, what's baptism? We're going to have a baptism. And that became our rite of passage. Rightly so. And, it, yeah. and, it, and we have baptized people from, I mean, every walk of life in Long Beach. And baptism for me... I realize this is the New Testament sinner's prayer. There was no sinner's prayer. It was you believe. What shall we do? Uh, believe and be baptized. And well, and what's part of what the power of that? I mean, you make reference to alternative lifestyles. Oftentimes, the alternative lifestyle finds expression in the body. So it's a it's a it's a it's a fragmented expression of embodied life. If by rite of passage does not have some embodied dimension to it, if it's only happening in my head mm. or to use evangelicalese in my heart, yeah. but it actually doesn't find expression in my body, is it too much to say it actually doesn't take? Yeah. And I think most young people know that I have to do something tangible and physical if, I, if this transition is going to happen in my life so that the act of coming to faith 
is not just a cerebral act. It's not just an interior heart act. It is both of those unequivocally. Yes. But it has to it has to be a physical, tangible act. And this has been given to us by the New Testament. Christ gave it to us. That is, it was anticipated. We are embodied souls. And Absolutely. thus it, baptism has to be integral, as you put it, to the to the transition, to the rite of passage to Christian faith. A few months back we did a three part series with some Anglican ministers, and we we were discussing Sacramental practice, which as I'm again, I really think that you're hitting on something even for the younger generation. The younger generation right now is cluing into this. I mean, exactly what you said. They're very tactile. You know, they are the foodies. They are the, yeah, they are the foodies. They are the, you know, they're the connoisseurs. They're the, they, they love to do things now, crafts with their hands because they grew up in the digital age and they're valuing that craftsmanship, things I can create through leather or wood or there's this whole movement. It's almost like a renewed arts and crafts movement, but you see these guys, they're, 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 they're understanding this whole Hebrew dimension of there's not a separation between the body and spirit. Right. Everything nope. flows in. It's all sacred at all. So so when we come into the idea of sacramental, um, the idea that I worship with all of my being, yep. not just singing, not just listening. Talk, talk to us a, a little bit about how you define sacramental. And, you know, I, I'm kind of leading you with that question. I apologize. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm getting all excited before I've asked you the question. But what I'm trying to set up here is that uh, for those that, that don't understand the definition, you're not saying um, we're saying that you need to go ceremonial. We're saying you need to go high church. We're saying what do you mean by sacramental and how does that tie in? to what I was saying about, you know, this generation and why it connects with them. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm chuckling to myself because I'm imagining answering you by saying, uh, you gave me these notes of what you wanted me to say, so here they are. Uh, no, <laughs> That's no, why no, I do quite. apologize to well, you. I think I'm all it excited. Is, no, no, no worries. I think it is important that each of these, we be clear what we mean by them because uh, there, there are so many different understandings of, of what evangelical Pentecostal mean, let alone sacramental. But on uh, – on the sacramental, in a sense, in contrast to the evangelical and the Pentecostal, there's a the realization that God graces us through his very creation. So the sacramentalist takes very seriously the incarnation. How did God bring about the salvation or the redemption of the created order? He took the created order upon his very self. The incarnation becomes the pivot then on which the redemptive purposes of God rests. And that that affirmation of the incarnation then suggests the deep physicality to the body of Christ, huge language in the church, that the church is this physical representation of God in the world. That physicality, those within the sacramental tradition are deeply comfortable with the physical dimensions of our faith. And indeed, um, you didn't use this language, but you echoed it, the language of embodiedness. There is no soul that isn't embodied. So nothing happens that leads to my transformation of my soul of my interior reality that is somehow divorced from my the deeply the deep physicality of my life. Well my sons in their thirties, it's one of my sons who gave me the language, Dad, if it doesn't take in the body, it doesn't take. And his gentle critique of my generation is we're deeply cerebral. We think about it and we think it's done. Mm. And when I when I grew up, the Lord's Supper was a thinking exercise. Our pastor would say now, as you're consuming, as you're eating and drinking, <clears throat> think about what Jesus has done for you. 
And I mean, it's stunning language. The whole thing is a cerebral exercise. Yes. I'm supposed to think about this. And when I think about it, I'm supposed to feel bad about how I haven't been faithful. And then I'm supposed to resolve an exercise of the will based on what I'm thinking to be a better Christian. But Jesus doesn't even need to show up. And the, the evangelical heritage at its best, Calvin, Wesley, the reformers, and the renewal movement of the late 18th century, these people understand that this is a real-time encounter with the risen and ascended Christ. Yes. So the physical act is not one-dimensional physical. It is the very means by which Christ is known. Christ is present. Yes. So the, incarna the incarnation is the backdrop of the sacraments. Can you have empty rites and rituals? Of course you can. Can you have empty ceremony? Of course you can. But without the, the symbolic act, this is, this is an ordained means by which Christ is present to the church. And I take your language earlier. I mean, some people don't – they think if we do this weekly, somehow it will lose its power. But there's a reason why Jesus said, every time you gather, I want to be there. Yes. So, uh, you know, and how is Christ present to the church? And one of the ways he's present to the church is at meal. Yeah. And this is I, – I, I mean, I love that you, you use the reference to foodies. The idea that, that when we get together, we're going to have a meal, and Christ is going to host the meal is just stunningly cool. Yeah. Why would we not do this? And every time you and I – if you and I were friends and we got together regularly, what would we do? Eat. At the very least, we'd have <laughs> coffee, and the odds are we'd eat together. Yeah. And we would say, well, if, if we have a meal, if every time Peyton and I get together, we have a meal, and that that somehow diminishes the power of our friendship, if anybody said that to us, we'd say, that's the strangest thing of all. No, that's what actually strengthens our relationship. So my marriage – However much sex and other things are important, my marriage is really built around a meal that Joella and I have together every day. We eat together, and I say the same through the church. The power of being in the church is that we eat together, but it's a symbolic meal in the presence of Christ. And, Amen. Uh, and, and so then, go ahead. You're talking to a guy who every church service we eat a meal together. So um, that and that was for a, a fairly large church. We changed it all. We had community within we didn't sit in rows we sat in semi-circles a room full of semi-circles as it grew and we would not sacrifice that because we were going to celebrate by eating and drinking together and and the reality is you mentioned something that was so powerful to me that you mentioned how it was it, communion is this somber take the wafer drink from the couplet and then you know feel bad and then feel thankful for jesus and the amazing thing about the Passover, which communion is based on, was it was a celebratory meal. It was a remembrance, yes, but it was celebratory. It was an experience based around celebration and joy and deliverance and thank you, God. And, and the amazing thing is, is that as you, um, look at the whole, uh, communion aspect of it, um, you really brought back to the idea that it was meant to be something that uh, the people of God that, that were filled with joy as we yeah. do it, not not filled yeah. with with sorrow. And um, and 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 I love that you bring that out. Um, well, when you look at the celebrations of the Lord's Supper that are referenced in the Book of Acts, um, and going back to Luke twenty four, and the the experience of those two disciples who we read, recognized him in the breaking of the bread. 
their response was one of I mean, they were track stars. They ran all the way back to Jerusalem <laughs> in their in their joyful discovery of the risen Christ. Yeah, and that uh, that suggests to us that it, there is a there is a penitential and there is a sobering realization that indeed we are being brought back again into the reality of the one who has died for us. But the one who has died for us is risen. He is present now in our midst. And so it's not just the Pentecostal who can claim we are happy people because the Spirit is with us. No, the sacramentalist can say we are now eating in the presence of the risen and ascended Christ. This for us is, a, uh, is, is powerfully formative. Why are we people of joy? Because we've encountered the risen and ascended Christ, not just in word and in the immediate presence of the Spirit, but actually at the table. Right. And, and you also brought up, you know, and as I, as I read through your book, I noticed you, you brought up Calvin's, um, and, and this was interesting because I, I came from a hardcore reformed background. And I mean, I was at Lloyd Jones's church. I mean, the whole nine yards. And, and so here was, here was the deal. Um, I, I'm one of those geeks that read the institutes cover to cover. And I can remember, you know, discussing this with friends at Calvin. Obviously, Luther believed in transubstantiation, where, you know, the, it's literally becomes the body and blood. But Calvin wasn't a memorialist. He didn't say, oh, this is just a remember. It's just like you said, cerebral. Calvin did believe it was a means of grace by which God imparted grace to us. Through that, there was a spiritual, and, and he actually, I don't remember if you say this in, in your book, but he gave it a mysteriousness. Like he attributed, and, and I think those of us that take communion that, that truly value what it is, um, there is a Pentecostal, uh, it, we talk, we say sacramental, but there's a Pentecostal element to it as Calvin defined it that no, so just like your baptism. You don't look back on your baptism and say, well, you know, it was this time where I was just kind of, no, it, baptism is an experience. You talk to people, it's a, you just, yeah. the Holy Spirit turns up. I don't know how to put it. And if we understood that this is what's meant to happen in communion, I think people would be going, give us that every, every single week, pastor, give well, us that. And, and I mean, I say for those that are of a Calvinian heritage, Calvin believed in weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper. Yes, he did. For those in the Wesleyan tradition, Wesley in his own practice celebrated not just weekly, but every Thursday as well. See his sermon on the duty of constant communion. Part of why I reference Calvin and Wesley is, yeah, I'm trying to expand the tent a little bit. And I'm expecting some people to start reading this and saying, no, this I'm an evangelical, and so I'm not going to buy this. And I, I think, you know what? If you were reading Calvin, who, uh, as you allude to it, he has a rich pneumatology – that doesn't get enough airtime in my in my estimation. Yeah. A rich pneumatology without which his understanding of the Lord's table doesn't make sense. So his 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 understanding of the spirit and his understanding of the table are woven together brilliantly in that section of the Institutes. Yep. But then also I, I want to say the same thing to those of a Methodian Methodist or a Wesleyan background who think I'm an evangelical and therefore I don't celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly or the like. I think we need to see that in actual fact this is deeply consistent with our evangelical i'll say is an evangelical heritage yes absolutely it's funny you know uh wesley would uh allow lay preachers he would not allow uh lay well let's put it this way Reciters. they they could not administer communion that because it was so important to him so it's interesting that you raise that so uh, wesley is my 
he is my apostolic hero of the church. Yep. So you've, you, you've, you've spoken my love language. So, um, evangelical, sacramental, Pentecostal, how do all these things fit together? What does it look like for church planners out there that are like, man, that sounds incredible, blending the best of all of these together? Because um, I always like to say there's weaknesses in every movement, right? If we were to look at all of these, for example, we had the Anglicans on. They said, hey, hey, now, you know, listen now, uh, there are people that go nuts on the on the symbols and the this and the that, and they ascribe more power to those things, and we got to be careful of that. And so there's always going to be weaknesses in, in all three areas. But it's kind of like having the mixtape, right? The best of all of them put together. That was a, that was a copious reference to Gardens of the Galaxy. So let's, let's talk about church as a mixtape between these. Well, uh, the language that Robert Weber used to use, the language of convergence, and I think of the, the institute that he established that now in, in, in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, I, I have some sympathies with saying, uh, maybe the very structure of worship is actually threefold. Uh, that is that for those out of the Pentecostal charismatic tradition, what really demarcates worship is ecstatic praise and adoration. And it is, without any hesitation, I use the language of the heart, it is heartfelt. And it may find expression in raised hands, and it's deeply physical, but there's a sense in which there's an utter abandonment of my, of my interior being uh, to the one who I know loves and accepts and receives me into his presence. So the idea of ecstatic worship, and by that I do not mean, for those that are already kind of furrowing their brows, happy <laughs> clappy worship. No, it can have, it can have a deep uh, – it, it can have lament to it. Right. But, the, but the point is that it captures the, my interior being right. uh, where I let my e- emotional guard down. And no, I might not speak in tongues, and no, I might not be as ecstatic as you'd like me to be, but the genius of it is that there's no kind of boundary between my spirit and the spirit of God. So Mm. the language of Romans chapter 8, the spirit witnesses with my spirit that I'm a child of God, and I, as a child of God, enter into the very one who I know loves me through and through and accepts me. And then to move, however, you know, you people in the publishing uh, media industry understand the language of segue. We move from that to the word, and we don't view this as somehow a jar, but with ease now, with hearts that have been lifted up, with hearts that have been opened up, we move now to the ministry of the word. And I think the, um, the, the teaching ministry of the church then is located within this uh, ecstatic encounter with the risen and ascended Christ. So it becomes no longer just a cerebral exercise, but it's an engagement with truth that comes with Meekness, as James puts it, anger has been set aside, and now with openness of heart, we respond to our teacher, and then we move to the table, and they, the, 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 the table necessarily, in my theology at least, has to follow the word, because what gives the symbol meaning is the content that is given to it by the word, and that is, it is word and sacrament, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to make a big point about that, but the, it is important then to say, having now heard the word, there is a biblical response to the word, and that is to move to the table. So it may be that liturgists or those who design our worship actually see a threefold movement to our worship. That is ecstatic praise, word, and sacrament. But I also then think it finds expression, as I say at the end of the book, in our rites of initiation, that we come to the faith as those who are entering into a teaching-learning community. We come to the faith through the practice of baptism that leads us into the regular celebration of the Lord's Supper. And we come to the faith 
as those who experience the laying on of hands, the anointing, and the reception of the gift of the Holy Spirit, without which we cannot live the Christian life. And we don't view somehow those as in tension or as in opposition, the one to the other. Yeah, that's and that's profound. And and I think that blending together is important. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned about the worship. I've been on a quest for an evangelical liturgy, and really because I've been known from time to time to slip into a high church service just to interact. And I think that's the benefit of when I talk to my friends that are either Anglican or Episcopalian or even sometimes Catholic. And I talk to them and I say, you know, what is it you love about like they'll visit a church like a a church that is, you know, say you're what is now traditional non-denominational 30 minutes of worship and 30 minutes of the word and done. And they'll say, yeah, it's, you know, I like, I enjoy it. It's, it's, it's nice, but, but <laughs> I have to feel going back to that idea of the body and the, I have to interact with it. And I have found it almost scandalous. The older I get, I've, I've always been evangelical, but the older I get, the more sacramental, the more Pentecostal I get. Or charismatic, however you want to define that term, sure, but, sure. uh, not theology, but, but definitely more practicing charismatic. And, and, and here's the deal as I get older, I hunger more for interaction. So in our church plants, we were always interactive with the word part. We would teach that would be interactive and then discussion that was interactive and the worship. We would do the 30 minutes of song. And I've been kind of wondering. You know, we, 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 for those that have come out of Catholic background or, you know, you're mentioning about doing communion every week. Um, there is that aversion because they associate that perhaps with a time where their faith wasn't personal to them. Right. Right. And right. what's interesting for me is I didn't come from that, but interaction in worship is what I'm hungering for. That interaction and use of Every part of my being, yes, I can raise my hands, but maybe I want to kneel. Yeah, yes, I, I kneel. can. Maybe I can listen yeah. uh, or sing a song, but but maybe I want to say a creed, not for the idea of you know, because that's what we're doing with the song we're singing. But maybe I want to say something together without music or with music, but something that's been said by believers yeah. all around the world yeah. for thousands of years. Because it's rooted in ancient faith from people. And I'm, I'm just saying, like, this has been a quest for me personally. I don't have all the answers. But when I was looking for a church a few months ago, I sat in a service where, to be honest, I was very bored. Because I don't like being a spectator when it comes to worship. And I wondered, what would it look like if these all blended together together? And I'm not arguing high church. Like I said, I'm looking for uh, uh, almost like a non-denominational liturgy. What would that look like? So that's my quest. And I'm just going to throw that out there. I don't know what you found. You've written the book. So maybe maybe you know more than I, but uh, on that in your experience. Well, I'm, I'm aware of some congregations that I think are doing it well. And if they are, there's either a senior pastor, minister, lead pastor who has – himself or herself drawn on these wells um, 
but also there's somebody who's actually skilled as a liturgist worship leader who is trilingual and is comfortable to move between all three. Uh, most congregations that kind of uh, – or most pastors that agree with me that this is what we should do actually find it awkward to lead one half or the other. So there may be an evangelical who's a strong teacher, but I don't know how to lead Pentecostal worship, and I don't know how to really preside at the table. It's not – instinctively, I'm not, so, I'm not really a priest. I'm a, I'm a preacher. Um, and so can we find liturgists who actually are comfortable to move between all three? Uh, and I – yeah, I, I'm often in an Anglican context. Why am I there? Because I can kneel. But if I raise my hands – I know, you know, whoops, I've just crossed some kind of a line for them. That's right. Or if I'm in my own tradition where we're very comfortable raising our hands, but if I were to kneel, they think, oh, oh Gordon's dealing with some stuff. You know, he must be. And so, so you don't want to draw attention to yourself, but there's not, we, we've, we've picked and chosen between this. Right. And I want to say, why are we picking and choosing? Because I think we have a generation of emerging uh, Christians, not just leaders. That are going to say to us, I don't necessarily want to pick and choose. Yeah, amen. Uh, having said that, I mean, there are gifts that are given to us. I mean, I go to – here in Calgary, I go to Evensong at the Anglican Cathedral. The third Sunday of every month, Evensong, where very little is expected of me, but I'm not an observer. And what Evensong does is that somehow the choir carries us all along. I, I don't understand what it is. But because I feel in my day job huge pressure where I'm just – I have to perform all the time, the idea of a worship event once a month where I don't have to perform, I'm just carried along, is a stunning gift to me. Amen. And I, I want to say bless the hearts of these Anglicans. They know how to do Evensong. My own tradition does not. My Pentecostal friends don't know how to do this, and I want to say they don't need to. This is just one of the things that the Anglican's going to do for all of us. And there are many of us who aren't Anglican who show up at Evensong, and they just kind of give this to us as their gift. And I say, thank you. And they don't ask me to perform or be <laughs> Anglican, just to be there and be carried along by what that, that particular worship event is trying to do. And rather than dissing it because it doesn't have preaching, it does not. I, as an evangelical, where's the preaching, folks? No, they don't have that at Evensong. That's okay as long as that's happening in my life, perhaps somewhere else. So there are gifts that are given to us, and sometimes we all need to be present at an event of worship that is deeply charismatic and Pentecostal. And it may not be as sacramental as we'd like, and it may not be as uh, word-oriented as we'd like, but it's a gift that they're giving to all of us. And as long as it's not happening as over against or in a way that is dismissive, then I say, let's let's go with the flow. Let's receive that as a gift to the whole church. Most definitely. So church planner, you're listening right now. You have an opportunity to write it from scratch, to think these things through carefully. Do not just reproduce what you've known. Go back to the scripture. Go back to Acts 2, like Gordon has admonished you, and think these things through. Pray about them. Reflect on them. Talk with your team about them. If we could make the healthiest church possible, what would it look like? Would we come to the table on a weekly basis? Why or why not? And start functioning in a way that's perhaps different. Maybe, maybe let go of some of the, of what you've known to explore some of what you don't know. And guys, I, it has been a pleasure to have you. Uh, it's been Gordon T. Smith, uh, author, 
president um, of the Ambrose University and Seminary in Calgary, uh, but most importantly, uh, the writer of Evangelical, Sacramental, and Pentecostal, Why the Church Should Be All Three. He's been our guest today. Gordon, want to thank you for coming on. Paid my, my sincere pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Absolutely. Likewise. And guys, this has been Hardcore Church Planning. Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planning. Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.